And we go back and there's the entire program is captured in one sentence in the chapter to the agnostic. And it's talking about our big book. And it said, the main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. There is the solution. Find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. Now, how does it solve your problems? When we're near this power, there are no problems. That's how it solves them. The solution is not a traditional one that we're accustomed to seeing. What the man told the other man about the alcohol, the spirit, is exactly true. These things happen in the, the words that are used. Look at the verbs in the promises. Can you imagine going to a psychiatrist and he says, oh yes, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm restless, I'm irritable, I'm discontent. All I do is think about myself. Well, don't worry, I'm going to talk to you a little while and self-seeking will slip away. <laughs> I know you're all worried about money and all that stuff. Don't worry. It's going to leave you. It'll just leave you. There's no plan to get any money. There's no nothing. Don't worry. It's just going to leave you. These are spiritual verbs. These are verbs that are only used when there's a higher power involved. This isn't a normal solution. Somebody told me I could have fear of economic insecurity leave me with no money arriving. That doesn't seem possible, does it? That is beyond the realm. So when it says, finding a power greater than ourselves which will solve our problems, this is what is happening. We actually are placed in a position of neutrality. The problem doesn't exist for us. It simply doesn't exist as long as we maintain our spiritual condition. So the entire solution is the spiritual condition. Welcome home, friend, to SoberShare's podcast, episode 52. The purpose of this show is to allow you free access to alcohol and drug addiction recovery success stories. We hope these stories will enrich your life with tools that will help make your sober experience easier and more serene. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is not an official Alcoholics Anonymous podcast. However, I am a believer in the program and the recovery has brought my family and I. We started this show to highlight the dramatic and inspiring stories that have been circulating in recovery meetings for decades. And I want to bring those messages of hope directly to you. I am glad you are here and I hope you find what you are looking for. Please remember this podcast is supported by listeners like you. Please consider making a donation so I can continue to make quality episodes for you. You can support us by clicking the donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. There is also a clickable link in the show notes of the episode that you are listening to right now that will take you directly to our PayPal donations page if you prefer to do it that way. And if you need extra help figuring it out, please email me at Mike at SoberShares.com and I will help you. And now I'd like to take a moment to recognize the people who have made donations to help move this project forward. I'd like to thank Roy H., Lynn W., Kelly J., Colin H., Mitchell L., Carmen N., 
David S., Jessica K., Christopher S., Krishna A., Krishna V., Christine V., and Diana S. So thank you for helping us with the donations. And we have a special guest today on the podcast, and that special guest is my mother. You want to say hello, Diane? Hi. That's my mama. So she is here to help us out today with listener feedback. She's got a couple of listener feedbacks that she'd like to read to y'all. So here she comes. This one is from Carly E. She says, thanks for allowing me to join. I discovered your podcast while on my honeymoon in Singapore in November of this year. Listening to it by the pool, watching normies drink their cocktails. And today I'm listening from the beach back in my hometown of Perth, Western Australia. I'm heading into my third year of sobriety and really love the interview style used to share experience, strength, and hope. Thanks for your service in creating this. Hope you all have an awesome 2023 and a safe and manageable New Year's Eve. The next response is from Jessica Kay. Hi, Michael. I just wanted to suggest a question for the podcast that I was thinking of when I was in a book study last night. In the beginning of your sobriety, when you were reading the big book, what was your least favorite part? And how do you feel about that part now? For me, it was the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. I was so lost and confused and had no idea what they were talking about. It's also my favorite part now. I think showing our vulnerability in those first couple of months of sobriety is useful to the newcomers. Thank you. Thank you, Mama. Mm-hmm. I love you. Okay, I love you too. <laughs> Very nice. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for helping with this. You're welcome. The name of today's episode is called There is a Solution. It's presented by Bob B. from St. Paul, Minnesota and Sandy B. from Tampa, Florida. This is a workshop that took place in Hopkins, Minnesota over three days during October the 17th, 18th, and 19th of the year 2004. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break that talk into three one-hour episodes. So today is part one, episode 52. And then, of course, episodes 53 and 54 will be parts two and part three. I hope you really enjoy There is a Solution by Bob B. and Sandy B. Morning, everybody. My name's Sandy Beach. I'm an alcoholic. How y'all doing? We flipped a coin last night, and I'm going to start, and then we're going to go back and forth. And um, we decided to take 10 or 15 minutes each and briefly describe our stories and how we got here, and then talk a little bit about um, the uh, hand of God in the um, origins of AA. Just very Briefly, maybe each of our favorite stories that illustrates that. But I had some kind of miscommunication. I had all this stuff ready on the tenth tradition, and um, <laughs> so we're going to shift over to there is a solution. <laughs> So that when you buy the CDs, you won't have the title on there, and then you listen, and it's all about the Tenth Tradition, and that would maybe get somebody drunk. (laughs) I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut in the 30s. I have one sister. She has uh, 28 years in AA now. 
We're both brought up in the Catholic Church, sitting almost in the same pew. She heard the most friendly things in the world, still loves that church, thought it was the nicest, kindest, the warm-hearted nuns. And I sat next to her and got terrified out of my skin. At age eight, I was sitting on the front row. I'd studied that catechism, and I had uh, had my ear yanked, and uh, you know, that's what was going to happen to me. And I had a personal revelation. I was looking at the crucifix. It's about 20 feet high, wooden cross. You couldn't miss it. It was hanging right there. <laughs> And it was like I kept staring at it and staring at it, and it was almost like a light or a message came, and it said, little boy, do you see this? And I went, yes. Well, this is what God did to his only son that he loved. (laughs) Guess what he's going to do to you? (laughs) And I actually fell faint. I mean, I lost consciousness with the shock of this new truth. The idea of God, I just never wanted to die because I knew when you died, you're in for it. (laughs) So it was hard for me to find any comfort with the concept of a higher power. And um, I needed that desperately because I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. I knew there was something missing in my life. I knew that I wasn't the same as other people. I never fit in anywhere. It was extremely awkward to do anything. I find it hard to meet people. And yet I was, um, you know, I'd be voted the best natured. I was funny and all that. So if you saw this outside, you said, look at that guy, look at that guy. And inside, I'm just about to have a nervous breakdown. I went to a little tiny prep school in New Haven called Hopkins. And... uh, It was founded in 1660, and just a little tiny day school, but it had been there for a long, long time, and it's a wonderful little school, and it was a pipeline right into the Ivy League, and so I went right down to Yale and New Haven, and when I got there, I was overpowered by all these people that came from all over the country, and they're all wealthy, and they all were just so much superior to me that I knew I didn't belong there, and I had this feeling during freshman year that the dean was going to call all 1,000 freshmen out onto the old campus and was going to say, gentlemen, we have discovered we have an imposter in our midst. (laughs) He's right back there, and they were going to have guys come and get me out of there. So that was the comfort level that I had. And my roommates are going, you're in college, you ought to be drinking. And drinking was a sin, and drinking, I don't know. There was something about it that I was trying to stay away from. But they kept telling me, it'll make you feel wonderful, make you feel wonderful. And I um, was at this social event where you're supposed to go around and meet all these other guys, you know, those type of things, mix and meet or whatever it is. It's just like going into combat, as far as I'm concerned. That is terrifying. And I tried, I would try, and I couldn't pull it off. And that night I went over and walked up to a group and they all were looking at me and you could just see it. I mean, people talk with their eyes, you can see it there. And they were going, we don't wanna know you, we have enough friends, stay the hell away from our little group. And it would just, I'd just take my breath away. So I tried to go to another group and they gave me the same signal. It was so powerful and so I never saw, couldn't get my hand out to actually say hello to anyone. And there was a bar there, and I decided, God, it'd feel good. That would be nice. So maybe I'll have a drink, and maybe it could feel good. And I had a drink, and nothing happened. I had another drink, and nothing happened. And 
Halfway through the, through the third drink, I decided to leave. I said, I don't feel good. I said, this is astounding, the overrated stuff they're talking about. And, you know, what is this? And I turned as if to leave, and I looked back at these guys, and it was as if they were gone, and there were now 40 of the friendliest eyes I have ever seen. Everybody in that room wanted to know me. They were begging me to come join them. And I just went, my God, I can't believe this. And I, I just had a whole new view of the world. It was no longer a dangerous place. It was a wonderful place. And people in it were marvelous. They all were smiling. And, and I just had a spring in my step. And I suddenly had a realization that they're going to be lucky to know me. <laughs> and it was sort of a mutual admiration. And I just, uh, my Fears were removed so I could be creative. I could think of something to say. It wasn't stifled anymore. And I thought to myself, you should have started drinking in grammar school. <laughs> this is remarkable how it takes you to a new place to live. I just was in a world that I thought was just one. I just couldn't believe it. It was just the, the greatest. And I'd only been drinking 10 minutes. <laughs> I now had the new favorite thing, and there wasn't even a close second. And of course, that night, if a little bit is good, then 25 drinks would be better. Than, and of course, I got sick and room spinning and vomiting and dry heaving and waking up on the cold tile in the bathroom and right near the toilet so you could dry heave and lie down and dry heave and lie down. And my head hurt and my whole body ached and my hair hurt. You remember when the, just everything was dying and I sat on my bed just thinking about this, and the thought came in, well, are you going to drink again tonight? And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I said, this pain and throwing up and vomiting and absolute anguish is a small price to pay for what I had last night. So I made my deal right there, that no matter what it took, it was worth it. So alcohol did something for me that it doesn't do for average drinkers. You wouldn't hear average drinkers talking like this, that they would give up, you know. And so if the devil had come along and said, all right, all right, before you go into this, I want to just make sure you understand the deal that you're signing up for. Now, are you willing to give up your high grades? Yep, 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 I'd be willing to give that. How about athletics? You like that? No, I'd be willing to give up athletics if I can keep this new power that I found. Well, how about getting your teeth knocked out? How about broken bones, getting arrested, almost flunking out? Your family will almost disown you. Yep, that'll be all right. Yeah, I think I can handle that. I can handle that. With this new power, I think I could handle just about anything as long as I have access to this. So I, that, now see, I thought I was a social drinker. I thought everybody had this remarkable transformation and awakening and, and all of that. And so, you know, the rest of the story is uh, sort of incidental. In other words, once you're an alcoholic, that's the main event. And then there's these side plots like getting married and joining the Marine Corps and <laughs> becoming a fighter pilot like Creighton over there. And these things are like a hobby or some other thing <laughs> that you do in addition to maintaining this relationship with alcohol. And so, but I just thought I was a having fun, you know, going about my way. And after um, about 10 and a half years of flying in the Marine Corps, the end came. The disease just came and shut me down. I ended up 
flying where I didn't want to be in the plane. I didn't trust the pilot. He was, he didn't know what he was doing. He was in bad shape and all these things. And um, I remember no matter what your job is, if you're an alcoholic, you are encountering situations that aren't supposed to be encountered. You know what I'm talking about in your job? Like um, I heard a doctor one time, he came out of a blackout in the middle of surgery and didn't know the procedure that he was doing and he was trying to talk to the people around him, to, they would give him a clue as to what he was doing and that type of situation was not covered in medical school. <laughs> and I was going through uh, withdrawals in the planes and there was nothing in the um, FAU handbook about flying the Crusader during withdrawals, alcoholic withdrawals. So you have to make up your own solutions. That's my point, is that you are left creatively thinking your way out of things. And I remember going, what am I going to do? I'm going to pass out. I'm, I'm losing my vision. I'm sweating. And I'm flying this thing, and i got to finish this. And so I came up with flying the mission with one hand. It was a photo mission. And on the stick, and that controlled the cameras and everything, and then the other hand was on the ejection seat. And my theory was that if I passed out, I'd pull the curtain, and I would go out, the plane would crash, the chute would open automatically at 10,000 feet, and I would be safe. And I remember, in spite of feeling panicky, I felt smug. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was almost like, well, they almost had the old fox. <laughs> but he got out of another one. And so you can see we're not doing too well. And, and so I went to the doctors and they couldn't find out what was wrong and they uh, diagnosed me after three months or three weeks of observation as childhood fear of flying and I was retrained as an air traffic controller during my last year of drinking. And uh, during that time I lost about 50 pounds, malnutrition, stopped hanging around people, just um, drank alone, drank vodka, Tried to, uh, I put vodka in soup, and that was what I was trying to eat. That was, I couldn't eat food. I was very sick, very sick. And I came back to the States and uh, had a grand mal seizure, went into the hospital, and six days later had the DTs, and the room was, there were people, and the CIA was trying to break me, and it was just remarkable, all that. And evidently I was screaming all over the place, and they got me and put me in a straitjacket and locked me up in the nut ward for six months. And so that was my crashing and burning. And while in there, an AA group talked their way in. They said, you know, you have some alcoholics in that mental ward. Oh, I don't, we don't have alcoholics in the Navy and all that. <laughs> we think there's a few in there. Why don't you let us bring a meeting in? And so a corpsman had three of us fall in on our little bathrobes. We went down. I heard about it, it sounded great, but I didn't think it was exactly for me, and so when I was let out and they told me if I ever drank again, my career was over, and um, you know, I just had one drink here and one drink there, and now I'm smuggling booze back into the nut ward. <laughs> and uh, somehow I got out of there, was sent back. Um, no, I knew I was gonna get caught, and on December 7th, 1964, which is my anniversary, 
I called AA from the Marine base at Quantico, and they sent another Marine captain over. He was the only other Marine member of AA, and he came to my house and took over. He was my sponsor. He's still my sponsor. I have the same sponsor for almost 40 years. And he just took me in and took control of my life. He just said, this is a 12-step call. I talk, you listen. <laughs> Boom, get in the car. That was the basic message. And I haven't had a drink since. And I was indoctrinated into this incredible program that we're going to talk about today that has been the most exciting thing. I thought flying those planes was exciting, but this is much more exciting. It's a much bigger deal. It is, it is absolutely, there's no comparison. And if you're new, we hope to impart to you today the tremendous excitement of spirituality. This is the major leagues. This, when we move into this level, we're going up at the epic level. This is why we're alive, is to have the opportunity to experience what's available here. Thanks. I'm Bob Bazanz, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bob. Uh, sober through the grace of God in AA since December 10th, 1967. Uh, isn't Sandy wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he is. He is. <laughs> I think, I think he's better on tape than he is in person, but I, uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, he, has, he has been one of my heroes in AA. Many of you know my story. I started drinking when I was 13. I was, uh, when I entered high school, I was 4 foot 11, 95 pounds. He kind of told my Catholic, you know, experience. There was a lot of pain and guilt. I never escaped, but I, you know, experienced the pain and guilt. But this, doesn't he put into words the experiences that almost all of us have? I, I mean, so, you know, word pictures. You can just see it and experience it, and all of us had those. And, and what I find fascinating is a lot of those old ideas still bedevil us. Ideas we've made up about ourselves, about how good we are at certain things and how bad we are at certain things. You know, we're 60 years old, and still some of those things crop up you know, that we made up our minds about when we were in 8, 9, 10, and 11 years old. When I entered high school, I was 95 pounds, 4 foot 11, insecure, almost all mouth. I was, uh, I was the class clown. I was just, had these constant eyes looking for what I thought you wanted, you know, trying to fit in, trying to be a member of the in-group. Uh, had my experience with alcohol. It was much like Sandy's. It wasn't like a change. It was like a sex change operation. You know, I mean, it literally was a, you know, a transformation, which is interesting because I think that's what recovery does is give us a transformation. And I felt like I didn't, wasn't part of the group. I felt like I owned it. You know, I mean, it, it literally allowed me to move around with a sense of ease and comfort that I've never had in my life. And when you find something that that's great, you just chase it. And I chased it, you know, pretty hard. And by the time I finished high school, I was in a lot of trouble for drinking. I had false ID cards, been arrested, car accidents, Went away to school, thought I'd get away from... I thought the problem was I was underage. And, uh, you know, the police nor my parents thought that was a good idea that I drank. I went away. I drank my way to the University of Notre Dame, middle of my senior year. And you just, uh, you know, there's a lot of stories that went on. I, I was due to be commissioned as an officer. I had to get a medical release. The medical release I got was for alcoholism. I was diagnosed an alcoholic when I was 19. I thought that was nuts. 
I mean, I thought, you know, how can a 19-year-old be an alcoholic? Uh, kind of unusual, you'd run into a psychiatrist that knew enough about alcoholism that he was willing and able to diagnose a 19-year-old as an alcoholic, wanted me to go to either to treatment or, or AA. I was not prepared for that. And uh, I was just confused. I couldn't give up alcohol. It was the only thing that made sense to me. I think it kept me alive during that period. Suicide, for whatever reason, was a, a regular thought for me. And I don't know if it was just the kind of suicide where we feel sorry for ourselves or how serious that would have gotten, but alcohol relieved. You know, when the rest of the guys would go on semester break up to New York, up to New York for the city, I'd go buy three bottles, and I'd get a, you know, I'd get an overstuffed chair from the lounge, put it in my room, and I'd, you know, I'd read and drink for the weekend. That was my trip. And uh, when I walked out of Notre Dame, I came back. I finished school at St. Thomas University. When I finished school there, my father uh, said, Bob, you got to leave the house. I'm one of seven kids, great parents, great brothers and sisters. He said, we love you. We don't know what to do with you. He said, you're just a mess. You're, you know, you're a bad example for everybody else in the family. And uh, you got to go. So I, uh, you know, took a job at a liquor store and uh, uh, have to use your gifts. And uh, <laughs> Vietnam's on. I'm kind of doing this part-time thing, trying to figure out what branch of the service I'm going to, you know, try to get into. And the third time, I, they lost my physical after I, I was accepted into officer candidate school. They lost my physical. The fourth time I took the physical, they failed me. You know, they said, take it again. So I took it again, and they failed me. And uh, I got a job as an executive trainee. All I wanted to do was grow up. It seemed like adults were okay. Kids had these awkward moments. All I wanted to do was get to be kind of like my father and his friends, and they'd make you vice president someplace, and you'd be okay. And uh, I didn't know there was a process involved in that. I, I, thought, I thought you just kind of happened automatically. And uh, I went to work at a local corporation, and I was a basket case. I had no idea what I was doing. I, you know, they put me behind a desk, you know, I didn't know what I was doing behind a desk. I am uh, can't stop drinking. Uh, now I'm the company drunk. You know, they used to use my room in Notre Dame for a study hall. You know, Rudy, you see that movie Rudy? He went to Notre Dame. I passed through. You know, I mean, he actually had the experience. When you're an alcoholic, you don't get to have a life. You know, what you give up is yourself in that process. And I, I gave up myself in that process. And now I'm at this company, and I'm just, uh, you know, I use up my sick leave in the first four months of work. I am uh, <laughs> falling asleep at my desk. I'm sleeping my hangovers off in broom closets and dark rooms. And, you know, I quit the job, uh, took a job as a salesman, thought it would give me more flexibility. And, I, again, I can't shut down my drinking. I don't know what it, you know, I, I just can't get the rhythm, and I'm... Can't, and I can't drink and work, which, you know, so therein lies the problem. And uh, I finally just, out of desperation, I, one of my buddies got married, and I uh, went on about a five-day drunk, and I woke up, not five-day, three-day drunk, I woke up th th on Thursday. Uh, and I didn't know if I had a job, a fiancé, or a place to live. And uh, I called AA. That had been recommended to me, and I didn't think it was a good idea, but that day I was... <laughs> I was out of ideas, and two men came and talked to me, and I had, uh, you know, maybe the most important day sometime in July 1967, and they came out and they talked to me about uh, their drinking problem and told me they found a solution. 
and hoped that that might have some interest to me, but for some reason they found that talking to people like me helped them stay sober. And in their sharing of their lives with me, they changed my life. Uh, <laughs> it was a, it was, I had talked to all sorts of experts to try to help me, but I'd never talked to another person with a drinking problem, and these two guys, one was six years and one was six months, uh, altered me and dropped me in the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I drank twice after that, once on a business trip after 30 days and once on my honeymoon after th three months. Uh, but it was never the same. I mean, with the information they gave me and the experience I had in the meetings, um, you know, it wasn't the same. And I had my last drink December 10th on the last day of my honeymoon on the way back. Uh, and it's just been a trip uh, that is just unexplainable. I think the most profound thing for me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have the same sponsor since I walked in the front door of AA, Warren. I've had the same sponsor for almost 37 years. I think the most profound thing for me is that they told me it was a disease that affected me physically, but also mentally and spiritually. I knew I had been sober a couple of times. I, I went back to my senior year. I was almost killed. I, wasn't, I was beaten up, robbed, rolled, pistol whipped, shot at, thrown out of the second story of a hotel, ended up in the psych ward of a hospital, and they were going to not let me go back for my senior year at school. And I went back and I didn't drink. Not drinking was not an answer for me. It was, it was horrible. It was as bad as anything I've ever experienced. And so when people would say, Bob, what's wrong with you is a drinking problem, I mean, it would seem obvious that stopping would be the resolution of a drinking problem. Stopping did not solve my issue. I, and I said, there, there's something else wrong with me. I mean, it's deep, dark, dirty, unattractive. I got a built-in failure mechanism. I seem like I'm talented. I, can inter I interview well. I just can't work. And uh, <laughs> I wish they gave prizes for interviewing. I, uh, well, I interviewed well until I interviewed for the job at AA. But other than that, I, I didn't. Uh, and... Uh, you know, so I, when they told me that it was physical, but I remember my sponsor told me that the physical part was like 10% of the deal. I was, I can't tell you how shocked I was. I thought we'd spend a lot of time talking about how not to drink. He said, no, once we're in AA, we use the 12 steps to change. He said, we use the 12 steps to the recovery program to find a different way to live, to be different. If you don't find a different way to live, if you don't change, you're going to go back because you don't know how to live without drinking. So what they gave me the idea. And then I said after the meeting, we'd go to the meetings like at 7.30, the meeting started at 8, I'd go home about 11.30, and you'd listen to these guys talk to their sponsors, and they weren't, almost none of it was about drinking. It was about fights with their wife, problems at work, doing bills, doing amends, how to do it. You know, I mean, it was talking about how to live. It was a very, you know, different sort of thing, and I really got hope. You know, I really got a sense that there was a solution. You can't describe the trip. I mean, you couldn't draw a straight line <coughs> from where I was, you know, to where, <coughs> to where I am today. Uh, our meeting Friday was on, you know, hope you don't get what you deserve. You know, that's uh, one thing. <laughs> if any of you are out there praying for justice, I recommend you stop it. <laughs> uh, mercy is a better... Uh, <laughs> mercy is a better approach to... Uh, uh, to the thing. So it's just been a hell of a ride. It has been, it has been a solution. Uh, I found in sobriety what I was looking for in a bottle. Who would have thunk, huh? Who would have thunk that I found everything I was looking for in a, in a bottle and more uh, in these rooms? So um, I'm going to be pleased to share these with Sandy and you this afternoon. And uh, Sandy's going to now talk to us a little bit about 
our history and God's role in that. And now we'll try to play off that. Thank you, Bob. Great job. Great job. Now, if you knew there's going to come a day in your AA uh, life when history will grab you, uh, in the beginning, I wasn't remotely interested in it. And as time has gone by, it just becomes more and more fascinating. And I love our archivists, and I'm so grateful for all the work they've done. But one of the things that I see in there that makes me just feel so wonderful is the hand of God. You just see that this thing did not just happen. I'll tell you something that did just happen without the hand of God. That was the Washingtonian Society, which was incredibly successful for a certain period of time, and then it just collapsed. And that thing got started by just six guys at a bar who uh, saw that their lives were coming apart, and they were pretty, you know, guys in their 20s, they're businessmen and uh, professionals, and they said, if we don't get a handle on this drinking, we're going to lose everything. And they said, yeah, you're right, and they'd drink to that and all that kind of stuff. And they were, what was big at this time in the 1840s were temperance movements and pledges and all this kind of stuff. So they said, we'll make up our own pledge. Maybe the six of us can keep each other sober. So let's get a pledge. Yeah, yeah, I'll get a pledge, I'll get a pledge. And they got this pledge, and it didn't have anything to do with God. It just had to do with saying in front of other people, I swear to never touch this evil stuff, and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, they found that the six of them, they would meet once a week and talk about how they didn't drink. And they said, this is great. We ought to go out and promote it. And so they had great promotions. And they tried to get people of high <clears throat> stature to join so that other people would join. And it became an incredibly exciting event. And at the end of the first year, they had something like 6,000 people in a parade in Baltimore, Maryland, celebrating this wonderful thing that they had discovered. And they, had, they allowed no politics, no religion, no nothing. You just don't drink, you say this pledge, and then you share um, about how you're doing without this de evil alcohol. And uh, within um, a relatively few years, six or seven years, they had uh, gone to other cities and this thing had, was uh, up the estimates are between three and 400,000 members, which is a bigger percentage of the population than AA is today. That's how big it was. And it disappeared like that. They took positions on outside issues, started dividing amongst themselves, and there was no spiritual basis. It was almost like a pyramid club, and you just keep, it, keep the generating this excitement and it just disappeared, and it disappeared so far from the radar that when Bill Wilson was working on the traditions and someone said to him, you know, you ought to look at the experience of the Washingtonians because they could teach you a few lessons about how an organization can, can fail and fall apart. And Bill Wilson had never heard of the Washingtonians. Never heard of them. You know, I mean, here he is, he's supposed to be learning everything about this. In our case, it's nothing like that. Nobody sat around and dreamed up anything. They just were instruments in the grand scheme of things. And we see that in the 1920s and when um, 
As Ray O'Keefe put it, a cast of characters was being assembled in Vermont, in Manchester, Vermont. And there was Bill Wilson over from East Dorset. There was Evie Thatcher over from Albany. There was Roland Hazard up from Rhode Island where they had summer homes. There was a beautiful young lady whose father was a doctor in Brooklyn, Dr. Burnham, named Lois. And she summered there. And these teenagers got to know each other. And as the events unfolded, each one of them played a critical role all the way down to the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And um, the first one was Roland, and he went to see Dr. Young, he, he was supposed to inherit the family business, many millions and millions of dollars, and he knew his alcoholism was going to prevent him. His father knew it. They had him go to all the best doctors in the United States, and as a last resort, they went to Dr. Young. He spent a year with him as Dr. Young worked on him to cause the transformation that is necessary to um, be set free from this terrible disease, and at the end of the year, Dr. Young explained, if he ever drank again, he may end up in a sanatorium, which is where people went. He said, I understand, he got as far as Paris, somebody asked him the wrong question, they said, would you like a drink? And he said, yes, I would. <laughs> Very short order, he's back to Dr. Young. Dr. Young, Dr. Young, I'm all messed up again, blah, blah, blah. And if you think about this moment in time, it is as if, being explained to him that he's an alcoholic and you cannot manage your own life. And then Dr. Young, when he said, Dr. Young, what can you do for me? Dr. Young, with all the humility of a world-famous psychiatrist, said, there's nothing I can do for you, which set the stage for no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. There it was. This was the court of last resort of human power. And what it did, it did the secret thing that is necessary in recovery. It took all hope away from Roland. It left him desperate. It left him so that he had nothing to cling on to. And then Dr. Young said, now I have heard of some cases like yours where people have found a spiritual power and they have recovered. If I was you, I would go look for a spiritual program. Now, until he told him there was nothing he could do, I don't think he could have talked Roland into looking for a spiritual program. He wasn't interested in a spiritual program. He wasn't spiritual. But that was, I'm not, I don't really, I'm not into that stuff. But once he found out there was nowhere else to go, he eagerly went after a spirit. Where can I find a spiritual program? He was just on a search. And that God could and would if he were sought. And he found the Oxford group, which was real in. They were all over the place, and it was a great place, and he got sober. And the next cast, when Bill's sponsor, Ebby, he was the next to crash and burn in front of the judge, Roland Hazard and Shep and uh, one other guy were there, and they said, would you release him in our custody? And the judge said, sure, be glad to, and they took him to the Oxford. And Ebby got sober, and Ebby, once he got sober and realized how exciting it was, he thought of his old buddy Bill Wilson, and he said, maybe Bill would like to do it. And mean, we all know he went to Bill's on that Saturday morning, and Bill's dying, he's at the bottom of everything, and he just can't deny how 
good Ebby looks. You talk about a program of attraction. He couldn't believe any of the ideas, but he saw what was happening. He saw his friend, and he just couldn't believe it. And Ebby was telling him, There's, you just need a higher power. And Bill had the same experience with God as a child. He said, oh, no, no, I'm not into that. And Ebby said, choose your own concept of God. You just need something. And in his next hospitalization, Bill cried out, if there is a God, let him show himself to me. And the room lit up, and he had this great experience. And he went out, and he tried to help other alcoholics to no avail. Couldn't help a single one because he was telling him about the spiritual experience. He was telling him about the bright lights and the mountaintop and the voice of God and all that. And the drunks at the bars are going, oh, that happens to me when I drink rum. (laughs) And Dr. Silkworth said, Bill, you're talking about the wrong thing. You have to do the same thing that Dr. Young did. You have to tell them about the disease. You have to tell them there is no hope. You have to make them desperate. You have to show there's nothing that can help them except the higher power. And then they will reach out. And so that started the whole thing. And and as we follow, uh, the one other thing I'll throw in is um, a name you don't hear too often, Jim Newton. Everybody familiar with Jim Newton? I'm sure some people are, but it's probably one that isn't. Jim Newton was a real estate guy in Fort Myer. And um, he also knew Thomas Edison, who had his laboratories and everything down there. And he became kind of an assistant to Thomas Edison. He's a pretty good organizer. But he's in real estate. That was his thing. And he had been in New York and had found the Oxford Group and was a big, just loved it. Loved the way it transformed his life. And he had a spiritual basis to it. And... Um, um, boy, I'm drawing a blank on the um, guy with the, the Firestone. Harvey Firestone was a close friend of uh, Thomas Edison and was visiting there, and he said, I'm looking for a special administrative assistant to come out to Akron. I got some plants out there, and I need this guy to be my special advisor. And Thomas Edison, I got the guy for you, Jim Newton. This guy is awesome. So he interviewed him, and he liked him, and he said, come on out. And he went to Akron. And um, while he was there, he got to know the family. He was kind of an in guy, and one of um, Firestone's son, Bud, was an alcoholic, bad alcoholic, and his father was real worried. And Jim had seen a few alcoholics recover in the Oxford group. And he said to Harvey Firestone, he said, let me take Bud with me on my next uh, business trip. I'm going to take him to a little group that I belong to. They could help him. So he took him with him on the business trip. And while they were there, they went to a couple Oxford meetings. And Bud had this transformation while he was there and came back a changed person. And his father was so happy. He said, what is this organization? He said, it's the Oxford group. And um, Frank Buckman was the head of the, you know, it started the Oxford Group. And, of course, Harvey Firestone goes, Oxford Group? We better get one in Akron. (laughs) This is awesome. And so with his power, the next thing, the newspapers, and it's all over town. And celebrities and Frank Buckman and all these personalities are going to be here. Come to the churches and see the Oxford Group. And everybody saw it, including Ann Smith and Henrietta Cyberling. And they went to Oxford 
and they saw the power of it. And the T. Henry and Clarice Williams, who opened their home to the Oxford Group and early AA members. And as a result of that, Dr. Bob was brought kicking and screaming by Anne to the Oxford Group. And um, he got all of the spiritual part of the group except the not drinking part. <laughs> and so we had Henrietta, we had Anne, and it was a custom in the group when a person confessed a problem that the rest of the group pray for a solution. And doctor, everybody knew he was an alcoholic, but he hadn't confessed it yet. And so <laughs> at an Oxford group meeting one night, he said, I want to confess something probably none of you know. <laughs> but I have this terrible drinking problem. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm trying desperately to get help, and et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't that many weeks later that Henrietta Cyberling received a call that had been transferred from the Reverend Tunks, who hosted the Oxford meeting, the thing with Harvey Firestone, that Bill had called from the Mayflower Hotel and gave him Henrietta was one of the 10 names that he got. And when he got a hold of her, she said, I have just the perfect, he said, I'm a drunk from New York and I think I have the answer to alcoholism and I need to work with another alcoholic. And she said, I've been expecting your call. Yeah, to the gatehouse of the state. So when the drunks go to Akron to tour all the sites, and one of the things on tour is the Firestone Estate, they only go to the gatehouse. They don't go to the mansion. They just go there where Bill and Bob met. So that was, those are the stories that uh, I wanted to share that you can see nobody was doing anything. They were just being guided. It was just being handed. They were just put in desperate situations and events were just transpiring. Bob, pick it up and pick it up. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, but surrender. I mean, when you, when you look at what Jung uh, gave Roland and you look at what uh, Silkworth gave Bill when he said you're, you're carrying the wrong message you know you're talking about this blind light experience on top of a mountain you have to talk about the disease and interestingly enough Bill carries the message of the disease to the doctor if Bill would have tried to trade spiritual experience with Dr. Bob Dr. Bob was enormously I went through with, with his Bob, Dr. Bob's daughter I went through Bob's library Bob was in a, you know, a very well read searching guy, as, as was Bill. I'm glad our founders didn't believe that you couldn't read anything other than the big, the big book. You know, we might not have had it. And uh, uh, the, uh, I mean, it really is, I mean, Jung wrote a book called Man in Search of His Soul, and I, I happen to have that book right now, and, and Bill autographs it to, you know, to Bob Smith at Christmas. He says, hey, Smitty, read this. Great stuff, you know. And it is, uh, those men were searchers. And uh, there was something happening in the 30s. There was, some, there was a spiritual revolution that was happening. The Unity Movement, Science of the Mind Church, the Oxford Group. Uh, uh, there was just uh, Emmett Fox. I mean, th there was this 
uh, revolution that was going on uh, in spirituality. I don't know if it had to do with the uh, the depression or whether it was just you know it seems like you know spiritual openings come at different periods of time. But what I do know is that if you've got someone who's really locked into a serious problem like alcoholism or any other kind of serious problem that none of us have in this room. Um, <laughs> Uh, we've been in a relationship with that for a long time, trying to change it, trying to alter it, and unsuccessful. Okay? But we are like locked in. It's like a tar baby. We have our arms wrapped around that sucker, and we're doing everything. We, there's no opening. You know, one of the great Zen masters said, you need the mind of a beginner, not the mind of an expert. The mind of an expert, there is no opening. There's no space. But what happens with surrender is your ego gets destroyed. When your ego gets destroyed, there's an opening. You aren't there. And when you aren't there, you have like a clean slate that someone can come in and say, try this. Would you be willing to look at this? And what happened to Bill and what happened to Bob and what happened to Roland is that they got knocked on their buns. They had a, you know, they had a surrender experience, and they were at that moment open, clear, and empty. Uh, I think the story of the book is one of the next great stories in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, you know, Bill stayed for six months in Akron. You know, I mean, you talk about the Depression. What better time could we have had to incubate Alcoholics Anonymous in the Depression? He didn't have a job. He was down there working on a, you know, on a, a proxy deal down there that had kind of fallen through. He still thought it might do it. So he's, he hangs out, and they go get Bill Dodson, and they go, you know, and they start, and they, then they get Ernie, and they start building this thing, and they've got a bunch of guys going. Bill goes back home to New York and starts a group in New York, and pretty soon they've got these two little pockets of groups going. Sometime in 1937, I forget exactly when, he goes back down to Akron, and he's sitting on the front porch of Bob's house. And in the conversation, it came to both of those men that there were enough recoveries now, let's say there were 20, that they really had stumbled on something that was bigger than themselves. That I mean, they weren't looking to start Alcoholics Anonymous. They were looking for a way out. I mean, they, I mean, they weren't trying to start an organization. They were trying to stay their themselves from this horrible grips of the disease and somehow they knew that working you know when 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 Silkworth talked to Bill and Bill made the, the other connection in the in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel was Bill discovered at that moment that he needed to talk to another drunk not to help the other drunk but to maintain his own sobriety that was not a small revelation that he made so when he went to that man it wasn't to inform the man okay it was also to maintain his own sobriety there was a humility in that approach, that might not have been, been there when you were trying to tell someone about your spiritual revelation. So at that moment, Bill said, we got to get this message out. We really, there's just, you know, lots of people who need this message, and they made a decision to write the book. And over the next year and a half, they wrote the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, primarily authored by Bill, but the first three or four chapters were roughed out by Bill, sent to both groups in New York and Akron, and kind of jostled back and forth. And then when the, the project kind of bogged down, Bill kind of took it by the horns, as I understand it. I don't know if that, and, and, and wrote most of, the rest of the, most of the rest of the book. And then they sent out the manuscripts. I, I don't know how many they sent out uh, to people. Uh, and many of you have probably seen the original manuscript where the steps are in the I form. And after you get done, when you read, you know, how it works and you get down and it says, you know, that probably no human power could have relieved it. God couldn't would if you were sought. And it said, if you've read so far and don't agree with this, please throw this away, you know, throw it away or else reread it. And uh, 
but there were a lot of comments, maybe the greatest of which is that the, the we got put into the steps rather than I. Uh, and so here this book, you know, they didn't have enough money to publish it. They got a loan from Rockefeller and a loan from Bert, the guy who was the, yeah. you know, had the clothing store. And they, you know, got enough money to get the 5,000 volumes of the book. And the publisher kept most of the volumes. They broke free, you know, from some of those. So, you know, and then they had the article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer and they got, you know, 800, you know, members come in. Then Rockefeller has the dinner, you know, uh, and they... they, they they give all the books out to the, the big shots and they hope they're going to raise money and they got about 1500 bucks from those dinners for a number of years that they eventually paid back. Uh, but but if, if we know more about that story, it is just at the last moment. They, I mean, they didn't have the money and somehow it came and they just, you know, couldn't get the books. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was just... And for a man to have written that book with three and a half years of sobriety, or four and a half years of sobriety, you know, he got, Bill got sober on December 11th, 1934, so I guess, you know, and, and the book got published in April of 1939, so there was, you know, five years between the, you know, I mean, mostly with five years of sobriety, you wouldn't let him cut your yard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, he has, you know, and here, here is this guy who, you know, uh, oh, that's a joke, it's not five years, maybe five months, but I mean, here, here's this guy, uh, yeah. I asked a guy to paint my porch, you know, and he came back and after he painted it and said, that wasn't a porch, that was a Mercedes. <laughs> you know, the... Uh, 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 but Rockefeller throws the dinner. Bill, you know, Bill wanted to get the Reader's Digest to, to review the book, and Bill wanted Rockefeller to give him a big endorsement, and Bill wanted to make a lot of money. They sold stock, they you know, they raised the stock to go do the book. And then uh, at the dinner, Rockefeller said, you know, that money was going to ruin this thing by accident. By accident, what he said is this is a work of, you know, I mean, we, we got some of the greatest principles that have helped us stay alive over a period of time. And then the Jack Alexander article in 1941. But the book, the codification of the principles, spiritual principles that we have. First of all, for a man with four years of sobriety to have written a book that has stood the test of time unbelievably well. I mean, this is a time when people, you know, specialize in tearing apart things of God. Very difficult. And, and there is, I mean, almost all of us, when we read that book, you might argue with pronouns or think, you know, but you, you read that book and you just go, oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it is, it is really, and the, and the nature of spiritual books is that they don't inform. The nature of a spiritual book is when you read it, you have an experience. And that is why it is new when you read it. Because you aren't, you're not getting information. Your mind isn't engaged. Your soul and your heart is engaged. And when that's engaged, it's always new. So when you read the book and you happen to be really plugged into it. But what happened to our society is from the April of 1934, uh, when the book, I'm sorry, 39, when the book was written, to, a, to March of uh, 41, we went from 100 people to 8,000. And that's what made that possible. There would have been no other way we could have kick-started our society without having the book. And they really thought that you could send people the book, they'd read the book, they'd have the experience, and they themselves, they, didn't, they, they, they never really thought that we were going to be in the, necessarily in the form that we are today. But you can just see, the, to me, the hand of God everywhere in our fellowship.
One of the great differences that I see today is our society is very different today in 2004 than it was in 1934. You could talk about things that were spiritual. You could talk about things that were religious. People expected them. They were normal. They were, they were, there was general agreement about the principles and values of that sort of thing. You might argue about you know, which particular branch that you should do. But by and large, most people were churched. Today, you know, we can, you know, we can't have a cross on a state seal. You know, we can't have the commandments uh, out in front of a state capitol. Okay, so, I mean, we are at a society today that is very different than the society. We are the cult of self. We are the cult of individual. We, we do not, you know, so there's just a lot of us today that are not churched, that are given all the encouragement by our society, poor baby, you're suffering, things shouldn't be tough, go take a pill, we'll get you something, you know, calm down, it'll be okay. <clears throat> and you should need the answer now, immediate gratification. You know, and then we have all these wonderful gambling casinos and porn on the internet and credit cards being mailed to you. I mean, there's just, I mean, there are, there's a vortex and a wind blowing out there today. I mean, there's always been issues. But I really believe that our society today has somewhat the form of addiction that actually pushes us to instability. When our, when our, when our society, Alcoholics Anonymous, was founded, I believe society supported stability. And so some of us, if we're sitting out there wondering why our thinking always isn't very good, wondering why we're having trouble, if you're not kind of centering yourself in some of the messages that we have, and you're unaware that the wind's blowing, and you wonder why your golf ball's going left. <laughs> I mean, there's a 40-mile-an-hour wind out there, Tiger, and if you aren't hanging on to something, you're going to go left. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I really think that that is one of the great differences today, is that I think those the men and women in the early days that got sober really wanted to conform. They really felt the pain of nonconformity and wanted to take on the responsibilities of their life. Today, the message of the world is, is your responsibility is to you. Just do your own thing. Take care of yourself. You're the most important person in the world. And as we will get into spiritual principles, our book says serving others is important. Having God be the center of your life. And I really think that message is not out there in society today, and it is hard for us to grab a hold of and hang on to. And that's part of what happened when, when Jung says, you know, there's been spiritual transformations, a central idea, what he said to Roland, there are people that the very central ideas and values of their lives are transformed. That's not an alteration. That's not an improvement. That is a transformation. And when those are changed around, when you have an alteration in how you be, Everything you do changes. That's a transformation. And that's what I think when, when Sandy talks about we've got a solution. I mean, it's really a solution. It is a change of heart, as they talk about in the you know, chapter working for others. It is a change of heart. And that's what we're looking for. It doesn't have, you know, it needs to be encouraged. And I, I, I think the, our book... The history of how our book came to be and the role that our book has played over a period of time is, is, is one of the great stories and God stories in AA. We're there. Look at that. Okay, here we go. Am I starting? Well, that was a nice break. I got some good snacks and coffee, and we're ready to go again. 
And um, I think we decided last night, I don't know how I get to be, have to start, but Bob talked me into that, um, to try and describe the solution. Because that, that is um, an interesting word, the, the solution. And uh, so I thought I'd start by telling you a story about a guy named Joe. And he's about uh, 30 years old. And ever since he was born, he has felt not right in his skin. And he's just filled with anxiety. Uh, he's afraid of things. He doesn't feel the same as anybody. He, you know, he just doesn't fit in anywhere, not in his family, in society. But he's trying to hang on. He's just he's keeping his job. He's um, afraid to ask girls out. He can't dance. He, he just has that feeling like, man, is it hard to just be alive? And as that burden of being so uncomfortable in his own skin got greater and greater, you know, by the time you're 30, if you've just been handling this all your life, you're just uh, almost desperate. And sometimes the idea of uh, maybe I should just jump off a bridge or something. And he's talking to his friend, and he said, um, I know a guy named Ralph. I don't know why, but something tells me to talk to this. You ought to talk to him. I want you to get together with him. And so he goes over and sees Ralph, and they're sitting in the kitchen at Ralph's place, and Ralph is going, now tell me about yourself. And he told him about him. He said, oh, man, he said, that's me. He said, I was just like that. And he said, there is a solution to this. He said, have you ever tried drinking? <laughs> and he said, no, my parents were teetotalers, and they told me when I was a little boy that if I ever drank, my hair would fall out, I would go blind. Uh, that, masturbation. Yeah. <laughs> that um, no one would ever talk to me again, and it would be the end of the world, and so I don't, no, I'm not, no, I'm not interested in that. And he reached under the table, and he took out a bottle of scotch, and he put it on the table, and he said, I'm telling you right now, there is a solution, and it's right here. He said, um, for about 90% of the people in this country, when they drink, it's just another event. It's just like uh, having a donut. It's, uh, it's not a major thing. But he said, there's 10% of us that have something happen when we drink that is absolutely remarkable. And the guy's going, oh, come on, come on, I'm, you know, what, what are you talking about? That, that just, he said, um, the type of problem that you have, the only way out of it is to have an awakening. There's no other way for you to achieve this. You're trying to go through life on your own. You're being overpowered by life. And what you need is something bigger than yourself. And I'm telling you, it's here. So what you need to do is to get rid of those old ideas. You taught those, those ideas up when you were a kid. And um, you're a grown-up now. You've got to rethink these things. 
I need you to get an open mind. I want you to try this. And he's going, no, I'm not going to do that. That stuff, it's, I, I know my parents told me that, and I'm not going to do that, and I just, I'm not interested. And he said, well, let me read something out of here about what an awakening is, and maybe this will help you um, with your thoughts. He says, when you have an awakening, the most important meaning is that you will now be able to do, feel, and believe that which you could not believe before on your unaided strength and resources alone. You will be granted a gift which amounts to a new state of consciousness and being. You will be set on a path which will tell you you're really going somewhere, that life is not a dead end, not something to be endured or mastered. In a very real sense, you will be transformed because you will have laid hold of a source of strength which in one way or another you have hitherto denied yourself. You will find yourself in possession of a degree of honesty, tolerance, unselfishness, peace of mind, and love which you thought yourself quite incapable. What you will receive is a free gift, and yet, at least in some small part, you have to make yourself ready to receive it. And so when we talk about you starting to drink this wonderful answer, we call it a spirit. That's what this liquid is called, is a spirit. And this is a solution to your problem. If you will do what I suggest to you, you will know how to dance. You will not be afraid to ask girls out. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you something. If you start drinking this bottle of scotch, you will be amazed before you're halfway through. <laughs> you are going to know a new freedom and a happiness. You will not regret the past. You will comprehend the word serenity, and you will know peace. And the guy's looking at the bottle, and he's just going, what? I'm not through. <laughs> you will intuitively know how to handle everything. And the man said, I think those are rather extravagant promises myself. <laughs> And he said, no, they're not. All of these will come true, but you have to work for them. I'm going to tell you something about this before you start. Half measures will avail you nothing. <laughs> Sippers do not make it in our program. You must completely abandon yourself to this bottle. You must take the idea that somehow you can exist without this and that idea has to be smashed. <laughs> you have to surrender absolutely and these great things will come to pass. And the guy looked at it and looked at it and he said, can I get you a glass? Are you ready? He said, I gotta think it over. I don't wanna rush into something like that. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, here's my card. If you ever get desperate enough, give me a call. So he went back out and got in the car with his friend. He said, how'd it go? He said, that guy is weird. I mean, you're not going to believe. You know what he told me? He said, 
we would be walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. <laughs> that I would be on a path. To, he said, it, it's, it's way too wild. It's impossible. There's nothing like that could happen. I mean, that's just out of the question. And so he went home and he went on with his life. And for the rest of his life, he stayed anxious. He stayed afraid. He endured the pain of living on his own and staying with his old ideas. He just endured it. And finally, at age 60, he was ready to die. His wife was by his side, and she saw him drift off. Then when he came back, she said, where were you? She said, I, he said, I was just thinking about that time I sat with that guy about 30 years ago. He said, I wonder if my life would have been any different had I taken that drink. And then he died. And so we go, now what's the point of that story? Well, we come in here and we're told about this thing. We're told this great story. We're told about this incredible solution. And our ego says, no way. No way am I going to be walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Uh, when I was a little kid, I saw a cross and it told me, mm, no way could this remarkable an event come to pass in my life. Those are extravagant promises. I mean, what are we talking about here of that magnitude of, of an awakening and a contact and a transformation? And we go back and there's the entire program is captured in one sentence in the chapter to the agnostic. And it's talking about our big book. And it said, the main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. There is the solution. Find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. Now, how does it solve your problems? When we're near this power, there are no problems. That's how it solves them. The solution is not a traditional one that we're accustomed to seeing. What the man told the other man about the alcohol, the spirit, is exactly true. These things happen in the, the words that are used. Look at the verbs in the promises. Can you imagine going to a psychiatrist? And he says, oh, yes, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm restless, I'm irritable, I'm discontent. All I do is think about myself. Well, don't worry, I'm going to talk to you a little while and self-seeking will slip away. <laughs> I know you're all worried about money and all that stuff. Don't worry, it's going to leave you. It'll just leave you. There's no plan to get any money. There's no nothing. Don't worry, it's just going to leave you. These are spiritual verbs. These are verbs that are only used when there's a higher power involved. This isn't a normal solution. Somebody told me I could have fear of economic insecurity leave me with no money arriving. <laughs> that doesn't seem possible, does it? That is beyond the realm. So when it says, finding a power greater than ourselves which will solve our problems, this is what is happening. We actually are placed in a position of neutrality. The problem doesn't exist for us. It simply doesn't exist. 
as long as we maintain our spiritual condition. So the entire solution is the spiritual condition. It is the solution itself. It's the answer to everything. Before we came to AA, we had one solution to everything. Do you ever remember drinking and, I mean, having a problem and go, oh, here's a problem I won't be drinking over. <laughs> I'll be handling this one sober. <laughs> no. The first thing we did when a problem came was, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, but I will shortly. <laughs> oh yeah, boom, boom. We intuitively knew how to handle something that was baffling us 10 minutes ago. And so the, the solution is in the power. And, and this applies to when you're brand new and it applies when we've been around for a long time. What does Bill say to those of us that have been around a long time and we're encountering a problem? <laughs> Go in the meeting. The meetings don't see as exciting. I, something's going wrong in my life. He only has one answer. You know what the answer is? More spiritual growth. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no you grew up to here. Now you got to grow more. It's only one answer. And uh, so that's what the solution, as I would interpret it, is power, power. And so the story, the guy was right. He was going to give him a solution. The problem was it was the wrong higher power. But it was an exact analogy to our program. Exact. You just get the power and the problems are resolved. It's not our job to resolve the problems. It's our job to do God's work. And the problems are all resolved.